It's Wednesday, May 9th, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump has pulled the United States out of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, also known as the Iran deal. Calling it a one-sided deal that didn't bring peace and never will, the president vowed to immediately implement economic sanctions in Iran and those willing to do business with them. We will speak to Nahal Tuzi, foreign affairs correspondent for Politico, about reaction to the withdrawal and where the United States holds leverage in negotiating a new deal. We will also take a look into the possible future of transportation. Uber is in the midst of their Uber Elevate conference, where they unveiled Uber Air, a network of flying taxis. They look like oversized drones and are capable of vertical takeoff and landing. The real kicker is that they hope to have a commercial fly-sharing network set up in just five years. We will speak to Marco Della Cava, technology and culture writer for USA Today, for all the details. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. We will be instituting the highest level of economic sanction. Any nation that helps Iran in its quest for nuclear weapons could also be strongly sanctioned by the United States. Joining us now is Nahal Tuzi. She's the foreign affairs correspondent for Politico. The president announced that we will be leaving the Iran nuclear deal and he will be reimposing economic sanctions on Iran. What else did he say in his address? Uh, Well, he said that the Iran nuclear deal is terribly flawed, that it's decaying, that it's not working, that Iran has been lying about its program. Of course, these are all things that Democrats, but more importantly, European allies completely and strongly deny. They say that the deal is working and that Trump is basically inventing a crisis where there doesn't have to be one. A lot of allies say that Iran has been sticking to the deal. And it seems that the president made a lot of his decision based off of this PowerPoint presentation that Benjamin Netanyahu made saying that Iran was lying in the deal. At the heart of the Iran deal was a giant fiction that a murderous regime desired only a peaceful nuclear energy program. Today, we have definitive proof that this Iranian promise was a lie. You know, honestly, I'm pretty sure Trump made his mind up before Benjamin Netanyahu made that presentation. But the thing about that presentation is that the experts on Iran and the nuclear deal say that it really didn't reveal anything new. It said that Iran had some sort of a program in the early 2000s and that it was being misleading to the outside world. And they are saying, look, we already knew this. That's the reason we pursued a nuclear deal with Iran. Trump did nod to Benjamin Netanyahu during his speech, but I'm pretty sure that he already knew what he was going to do and has known for quite a while. Right. I think some CNN reporters were saying that some of the most recent documents that Netanyahu had were from 2003. It made the case, this is why we need the deal. And, you know, they got it done, obviously, in 2015. Right. But, you know, Trump's problem with the deal, or at least what he says, is that, A, it's not permanent, which critics will argue actually it is, but, B, that it doesn't cover a lot of things that are not nuclear-related. He said that it should have covered Iran's nuclear, uh, I'm sorry, ballistic missile program, that it should have covered Iran's regional support for groups like Hezbollah and its role in the conflict in Yemen and Syria. Frankly, some of these things hadn't even happened by the time the nuclear deal was inked. It's one of those things where he feels like it's not broad enough, and he wants a bigger, better deal deal, whereas the Europeans were saying, look, let's keep this deal, but build on it to address these other issues. Trump instead wants to just 
get rid of this deal and start from scratch. And right. there's he wants no to indication be, that the Iranians are willing to do that. He wants to be the quote-unquote negotiator-in-chief. But one of the questions I had is, is how, how does he negotiate, how does he get into this if all the other allies, everybody else wants to remain in the deal, they want to they want to continue everything going on, and Iran also signaled the same. So how does he negotiate from the outside on this? Well, that's what's interesting. Look, he reimposed, he is reimposing sanctions that affect Iran. But what's really interesting about these sanctions is they're so-called secondary sanctions. That means that actually they target companies and other entities in foreign countries that do business with Iran. So he's actually going after European companies. He's going after Russian companies. He's going after Chinese companies that want to do business with Iran. So in theory, he has this U.S. leverage over these other countries to make them come to the table and talk some more about coming up with a new deal with Iran. And it remains to be seen whether the Chinese or the Europeans or others are going to stand up to Trump on the sanctions issue and say that they're going to defend their companies and perhaps even take him to an international tribunal to deal with it. But that's the leverage he has. Is he's, he's saying, we will not allow you to, to enter the Iranian market, prohibit you from you know, looking accessing 70 million potential clients and put fines on companies in your countries that do business with Iran. And so that is a sort of a threat that he's waving against the Europeans, not not just the Iranians. It's a, it's a leverage in the banking system. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty intense. And, you know, frankly, a lot of businesses are just going to, they're just not going to take any chances and they're just not going to do any business in Iran. I know that a lot of people have said, have been really skittish to even do business with Iran anyways. I guess a, a, there's a whole host of other economic sanctions that prohibit a bunch of U.S. companies from doing business with them. So I guess this is the, the leverage that he has is sticking it to uh, some of the European allies. So no, exactly. Can... I mean, the thing is, the U.S. has so many sanctions on Iran still that have to do with its human rights abuses, the sponsorship of terrorism, et cetera, et cetera, but are not have, don't have anything to do with the nuclear deal. And so if you're an American firm right now, even if the nuclear deal were to stay in place, you basically can't do business with Iran. So that's why Trump is turning to these secondary sanctions and reimposing them because they affect companies outside of the U.S. What has been the reaction of other people involved in the deal? And I know President Obama had made a statement. What, what has everybody's reactions been so far? Generally speaking, there's been a lot of unhappiness. You know, certainly people in the Democratic Party have spoken out against this. There are even some Republicans who oppose the deal but say that this is not a good move because it isolates the U.S. and that instead of leaving the deal, we should have tried to just enforce it better. Overall, it's a pretty negative reaction. But he does, Trump does have his supporters. The Gulf Arab states, including Saudi Arabia, have said that they support his action. Israel has certainly, well, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, supports his actions. There are many in Israel who don't. But, and besides that, there are some Republicans who are willing to back up their commander-in-chief uh, on this particular issue. But, you know, the one thing I think everybody can agree on is that he, there doesn't really seem to be a plan B. Like, nobody knows what's going to happen next. They, they're just saying, well, we're going to keep talking to our partners. Well, what's your plan? It's kind of like repealing and replacing, but not having anything to replace it with. Right. I think John Bolton had said that the sanctions will be reimposed immediately. So actually, the, the sanctions will be reimposed immediately. They take effect immediately. And by that, it means that new companies, like, well, companies cannot enter into new contracts uh, with Iranian entities unless they want to face financial penalties from the United States. But there is also going to be a, what's known as a wind down period, and it could be 90 days or more for companies that already had contracts with Iranian entities. So the U.S. is giving some of these companies that were already doing business there some time to get out before penalizing them. Boeing was one of the companies that was doing doing business with them. They were planning to sell them about 110 different airplanes. 
over the next few years, but they've made decisions on their own also to not really make that a big part of their business plan in case the deals go bad. Certainly, ever since Trump was elected, a lot of companies have been very, very cautious about entering the Iranian market because he's been very clear since the campaign that he wants to get rid of this deal. And what did the Iranian president say about uh, the U.S. backing out of the deal? You know, he has said that the U.S. is making a mistake, but that he has asked his foreign minister to go ahead and see if there's ways to salvage the deal that keeps just the Europeans and the Russians and the Chinese in it along with Iran. But he's also suggested that they might go ahead and start enriching uranium to some extent once more, because they feel like if the U.S. is going to violate the deal, which is what it is doing by reimposing sanctions, that Iran should be able to make some sort of a reciprocal measure. That being said, though, it doesn't mean it's going to happen anytime soon. Like, it sounds like they want to try to salvage the deal first. And then uh, one final thing that we learned out of the address President Trump gave, he said that Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo is headed to North Korea to prepare for the summit with Kim Jong-un. Correct. This is a a big, big uh, responsibility for Pompeo, and he's going to go there. And one of the things that Trump and others hope will happen is that the North Koreans will release three Americans who are currently held prisoner there. If they do so, that'll be seen as a gesture of goodwill, and it'll certainly be a diplomatic coup for Pompeo himself. That being said, it's worth remembering that there are at least three, I think closer to five, actually, Americans who are held in prison in Iran on very questionable circumstances. And so this decision on the Iran nuclear deal is likely to badly damage the prospects of those Americans in Iran being freed. Nahal Tusi, Foreign Affairs Correspondent for Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. And this all-electric bad boy flies 150 to 200 miles an hour. It ranges up to 60 miles on a single battery charge. And uh, you can imagine what this does to commutes. You can imagine the gnarliest commutes, an hour, hour and a half, two hours on the ground, becoming just a handful of minutes in the air. That's pretty exciting. We think that near launch, like basically once we kind of stabilize after launch, we'll, we'll be able to offer you an Uber Air flight for the cost of an UberX trip on the ground. You'll fly pooled, but you'll pay UberX prices. Now, of course, for that price, you'll also move at 150 to 200 miles per hour. Joining us now is Marco Della Cava. He's a technology and culture writer for USA Today. So Uber is in the midst of its Uber Elevate conference right now. They unveiled their uh, Uber flying taxi. What can you tell us about it? Well, this is actually the second annual conference uh, called Uber Elevate, which is indeed focused on Flying taxis, air mobility, uh, most of us would probably typically think of this and think helicopters. That's sort of the same right. thing. Everybody but keeps what, saying flying car, but this thing looks like a helicopter or like an extra-large drone. Yeah, extra-large drone is a very good way to put it. And, in fact, that, that brings up questions, right? I mean, drones haven't even gotten the green light to kind of buzz around willy-nilly in our skies, so it really remains to be seen if if a people-sized version, typically a pilot plus four passengers, is going to be allowed to fly around our cities. But Uber's sort of proceeding and, and, and cranking up partnerships with everyone from government entities like uh, NASA and the U.S. Army. Those were the recent announcements yesterday at the first day of the Elevate Summit. And they're also forging partnerships with established manufacturers of aircraft and helicopters. So it's sort of a big partnership to see, hey, where does mobility go in the next 10, 20, 30 years? And they think it's 
this. Where's the interest of the Army and NASA lie in this? The partnership with NASA is essentially uh, to study how you would manage air traffic control in this sort of scenario, right? Much more dense than than airplanes flying at 30,000 feet. These things fly at 1,000 to 2,000 feet, and they can fly as fast as uh, 200 miles an hour. So there's a lot of density issues there, and that's apparently what the partnership with, with NASA is about. Partnership with the U.S. Army was announced uh, yesterday, and that's a little bit more focused on engines. And in particular, these are all electric-powered flying machines. And in particular, this is a double-barreled propeller that apparently is quieter and more efficient, and that's what the U.S. Army is going to work, I presume, with, with Uber engineers on. They had said helicopters are not the future, and that's what that double-propeller thing will try to limit is the, the amount of noise. Do we know how that works? Well, I, I think it we, it probably works like a regular propeller, but there's got to be something about the physics of it all that maybe uh, and, and the turbulence of it that keeps the noise part of it in check. But yeah, as you said, the, the issue with why not just have a bunch of helicopters out there, they say, has to do with everything from noise, the cost of fuel, and even safety. So that's why they're turning these new waters. What's their timeline on this? I've read that they want to start in about two years with demonstrations and then in five years have this be ready for commercial use? Well, that's what they're saying. That's exactly right. And there are three cities that they've targeted for this so far, which are in terms of, again, partnerships and feasibility studies. But those are the Dallas area, Los Angeles, and Dubai. And obviously they're picking places with, especially Los Angeles, tremendously serious traffic congestion problems. So they gave a few examples at the summit that sort of indicated that a one-and-a-half-hour UberX ride-hailing ride from the airport to downtown, that 90-minute ride would turn into door-to-door, like a 25-minute Uber Air flight. And cost-wise, they seem to sort of suggest that that trip in an Uber on the ground would cost about 60 bucks, and that they projected that an Uber Air flight taking one-third the time would cost about $90. Wow. I mean, that's if that's true, that would be pretty amazing. But they would need a ton of these Uber taxis, pilots, to kind of make that possible, and the demand for it as well. Yes. They rolled out all sorts of executives to talk on those exact issues. They sort of said that demand, if if this thing existed tomorrow, that demand would be kind of off the charts. I think they said that you know, 20% of people currently taking Uber rides would opt for this. And they're sort of using as their their sort of framework the notion that we're all getting away from car ownership costs so that all of a sudden what we really have is all this money we used to spend to own and operate our cars that we're going to use for transportation. And you just apportion it differently so that you would use this to, when necessary, take Uber Air. Your other question was valid, too. They brought this up. They said they expect the partners to sort of produce these flying machines in mass quantities. They also showed sketches from some partners of what these terminals would look like, that these things would fly in and out of, and they could handle like thousands of flights a day. So, yeah, where, where would these terminals be located? I mean, theoretically, we'd still have to take the time to drive somewhere just to be able yeah. to load up in one of these things. That's right. And so those would be positioned in presumably 
strategically located places, urban centers. Let's say you're in downtown Dallas and maybe you do need to get to the airport in the area, or maybe you're going from downtown Dallas to the Dallas Cowboys football game. They would pick things like that where they'd say, look, for the most part, nobody's going to spend an hour and a half in traffic to get to the football game, but they might take an, an Uber Air flight. You write a lot about uh, the intersection of technology and culture, and it really seems like a lot of these projects are geared towards this ride-sharing economy, no more car ownership. Where do you think the future of transportation is going to lie? That's a very good question. I think if you could snap your fingers and design a city that was solely meant for self-driving cars, the technology is pretty close that you could fill that city with cars that, for the most part, would do a pretty good job, and probably a better job than humans, of keeping people safe and transporting them places. The problem is that we live in the real world, and you've got to incorporate this new technology with, with regular people in their big pickup trucks, and, and accidents happen. So I think that's what might cause this to, to take a while. And I certainly don't think that all over the U.S. people are going to hand in their keys and say, I'm done with cars. But certainly in dense urban areas, which is, again, where Uber's focusing with this uh, Uber Air thing, in those areas, I think folks would probably readily hand over their keys. They're already doing ride sharing and ride hailing. And so it's probably not that big a leap for those folks to take a step in this direction. If you had to take your pick, what do you think will eventually win out? Something like the Hyperloop or the Boring Company, which is underground, self-driving cars, this Uber Air thing. If you had to pick, which one do you think would win out in the end? I would say that you're going to look at pretty realistic rollout of this sort of autonomous ride-sharing kind of thing in cities that are really prepared to handle it, but not sort of blanket all over the U.S. I'm fascinated by the Uber Air thing. But again, just with, with us having issues with drones getting the green light, could you imagine looking up and seeing like zillions of these things flying around? I, I, just, I don't know. Right. That, Setting that up the, inf- like the infrastructure and logistics of it is really the, the biggest hurdle, I think. Marco De La Cava, technology and culture writer for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.